What's up, y'all? Welcome to Renegade Culture. I'm Dr. CBS. And I'm Dr. Layla Brown, and we're here for the takeover. Period. But hold on, what is wrong with this camera? As I combine all the juice from the mind, heal up, wheel up, bring it back, come rewind. Powerful impact, boom, from the cannon. Oh, Renegade Culture. Yeah. You know what it is, Renegade Culture's in the building. You know what I'm saying? Fuck what you heard. That was really good. Yo, what happened? There was some other folks in my seat, man. I don't know, man. I don't like, like that. Look like things was going on. I know, there's some blind hair over here, you okay. know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know what's going on in thought, there. Thought, you, thought your lace front was fronting. That's uh, what I'm saying. Okay. Yo, what's poppin'? Yo, renegade culture, how yes. you doing? And the real host of here, you got Kamal K. Franklin with. I'm the mighty Kalanji Jabachenga, a.k.a. the Riot Starter. Mm, Act yeah. like you know, and True. you don't know, you will know. Damn, no, that was a... That. And who we got back there? We got no other than the ear doctor in the building. What's what? Okay. Huh? And boy, Jai High in the building. Jai! What up, Jai High? No okay. minister server today. No minister server. Minister server out hanging with his homeboys out in Detroit and shit. Yeah. Burn. Doing, Doing his steps. Size and such Ooh. Shit. True, true. Hey, stepping. Hey, <laughs> stepping in the name of love. Shout out to man. Minister server out there. Hope he ain't doing that. You know what I mean? Yo, we got some students. What's your, what's your name real quick? I know they had on mic. So say your name. Ty. Oh, Ty. Monique? Michelle. Thank y'all. Man, okay. you can't say shit else for the rest of the show, but we appreciate that. I thank <laughs> y'all so much. Damn, you know what I'm saying? Ty been jumping around for the last I know, man. Years, bumping it into shit, uh, knocking my shit over. Like, throwing up signs and shit like yeah, that. I don't know. You got that. Say, what's your name? Ty. <laughs> Almost as smooth as my man, Josh. I think time about high as Josh. Oh, maybe, cool. maybe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, right. welcome to Renegade Culture. This episode, like, I don't fucking know no more. <laughs> but, yeah. we in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got a lot of lot of live shit to talk about today. We got a lot of good shit to talk about. We got, as folks saw, like uh, two comrades from Black Power Media are going to be our special guest tonight. We got Dr. Layla Brown and okay. Dr. CBS. Okay. Right. Um, we're going to talk all things international. We're huh. going to talk about Haiti, Cuba, what's okay. happening in South Africa. Okay. Come back around, talk about U.S. Empire. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And we'll have a little fun too. A little fun, you know, because our folks are here. Fun? Yeah, man. We got okay. folks in the studio. You know what I'm saying? But before we do that, we'll we got some Patreon. Oh, Patreon time. All right, check this out. So big up to David Gandini. Oh, okay. Big up to Latasha Levy. Uh, Noah Cheetos. Uh, I hear the fuck Tony. And Davis Obinga in the building. Obinga. Oh, that was a near fuck up. We're going to give you a little credit oh, for that. I think there. they we probably fucked names. at least two or three people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was kind of <laughs> like, yeah. This dude, chicken strats. You got to try to read. Oh, it. damn. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, um, real live show tonight. You know what I'm saying? We're going to have a good time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, happy to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm tired as fuck. We've been doing a remix oh. morning show every goddamn day. I haven't been, but you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, you tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got breaks, motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and shit with other people and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, but this feels good. We have a good weekend. It's That's right. About to get live out Yep, no doubt. Anyways, we're going to get coached. We'll be back, to, back in a few ticks. Oh. Our guests, don't touch the motherfucking dial. Peace. Saturday Renegade coaches in the building. You know what I'm saying? We back with a brand new hot show for them. Right. Okay, got a whole lot of shit going on. We got a couple special guests tonight. I know, you know what I'm saying? We got people from the BPM family, from the Black Power Media family. Okay. We got our very own Dr. CBS. Dr. CBS yeah, in the building. Yeah. What up, Dr. CBS? You know, out here. 
Happy to be here. Funky, fresh, and in the flesh. Okay. With, you know, the BPM comrades. That's how we do around here. Also in a place to be with a fresh, crisp, hoeing ain't easy shirt. We got <laughs> no, no, other Crispy, man. no wrinkles. It's here Chris. Right. No, it's not though. Pay sex workers. Okay, okay. okay. Not the pay sex pay workers. Mm -hmm. All right. Dr. Layla Brown. Dr. Layla Brown. Did I get the name right that time? Okay, we killed you. Okay. okay, all right. Better. He's working on it. He practiced uh, all week. Know. Anyway, we're going to have a good time. We got a lot of serious shit going on right yeah. now. You got things going on that's been popping off. We've been talking about it on the Remix Morning Show. We've been talking yeah. about um, Cuba. Cuba. Yeah. We've been talking about Haiti. Mm -hmm. But some of the things we haven't talked about, we haven't talked about South Africa. Yeah. And we haven't talked about Swaziland, which mm -hmm. Swaziland changed its name uh, back in 2018 to... Swatini. East Swatini. East Swatini. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Yeah. So there's a lot of bullshit popping off out there as well. So we're going to deal with all that today. Yeah. How y'all feeling? I'm good. I'm just, like I said, glad to be back in a city with black people. Mm -hmm. No doubt, no doubt. Now, you, you was out in Venezuela recently, yes, right? Yes, about, I guess, two weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you don't yeah. mind, you know what I'm saying, we know there's a lot of shit popping up in Venezuela as well. Can you give us a little recap or something? Uh, I mean, I was there for um, this global conference that's a follow-up of a series of con uh, conversations that, have, that the government has been hosting and paying for um, people to kind of come together from all over the world to talk. And so that particular Congress was the Congress for the Peoples of the World. Um, and there were people from indigenous communities, Afro-descended communities, LGBTQ communities, media, people who work in the media, people who are labor union workers, um, cultural workers, educators, to think about the, all of our separate roles as people who are united in this struggle on the left, right? What does it mean to be a teacher and be working towards revolution? What does it mean to be, you know, a person in the media working towards revolution? What type of work should we do and how can we collaborate? And so that's the, the sort of big picture of the conference. But there are still a lot of things that are in the works that are coming from that. Do you, did you notice uh, any differences between uh, uh, when Chavez was in office and now? What, what's, how, how's it for looking? Sure, over there? For sure. Uh, the first time I went to Venezuela was in 2011, and I was there for Chavez's last election. Um, and I don't, that was in 2013 uh, before he died. And or was it 2012? I can't remember. Um, but you know, as they as the media tends to do it blew up the situation um and people thought they were like you know it was like a civil war happening in the streets which it was not um but i would say that the biggest changes i think um have come in the last couple years i think as the sanctions have increased um as it's been more difficult to import medicines and, and import foods um actually one of the things that i noticed not so much this time but in 2019, when I went back, is Caracas is a city kind of like LA. Like the traffic is terrible, mm -hmm. and there were no, like very few cars on the streets. And one of the reasons for that is because because of the blockade, a number of things can't be imported to fix cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the metro system. Like I remember, the Caracas metro system was fast and efficient and clean, and it's really kind of falling apart now. So there are a lot of really um, infrastructural damages that are happening because of the country's inability to kind of keep up with things um and you what know about the flights oh yeah well <laughs> and also because of the blockade um you cannot actually travel straight from the u.s to uh to venezuela so those of us who are coming from the u.s most of us either had to go through um What's the joint? The my oh uh, Dominican Republic. Yeah, well, I, I flew through the Dominican Republic, but then um, 
Cancun. Mm. I'm trying to think of like vacation spot in Mexico. Um, and that's also a weird place to fly through because it's, you know, it's also known for a lot of drug trafficking. And so moving through Cancun to come to Venezuela is just another way to get harassed. Um, but because of that, you know, it's hard to get back out because there are only one or two flights every couple of days. So, so it sounds like the travel, even it sounds like, you know, years ago when I traveled to Cuba, mm-hmm. it was the same thing. Yeah. You had to go to the Bahamas yep. or you had to go through Mexico right. or you had to go to yeah. Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all this kind of ties into kind of like the central theme is how, I mean, there seemed to be a block on the left in South America, in the Caribbean. We had Venezuela, mm-hmm. Bolivia, obviously Cuba, a long stay. Mm-hmm. We had some action with Aristide a few years ago, but we've had the U.S. now making maneuvers Mm -hmm. to do what it can to sort of break up that block. Mm -hmm. Um, So as we sort of dash around, we see what's happening now in Haiti, um, where we see the most recent events in Cuba. Uh, What do you guys think is kind of happening in terms of the, like what's behind all this right now in terms of some of the turmoil? Well, I think it's really interesting to see like the dialectic between right wing populism on the one hand and um, the upsurges and left mobilization and left governments on the other hand. So, for example, a socialist was just elected in Peru. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a really strong political and ideological struggle happening right now. And I think that this sort of divergence is manifested in Cuba on the one hand and Haiti on the other. Right. Mm -hmm. Because Haiti had a very right wing U.S.-backed, dictatorial, non-undemocratic um, dictator, basically, in Jovenel Moise, who was recently assassinated. On the other hand, you have a socialist government in Cuba, but that has been under duress because of the because of the blockade, um, exacerbated by COVID, yeah. um, exacerbated by the fact that they're unable to get just basic necessities. So for example, Cuba had developed five vaccines, mm-hmm. but was un- unable to get syringes, vials, et cetera. And so all of, all of this is undergirding all of it is US imperialism, Western imperialism, and the increasing, um, you know, the increasing sort of entrenchment of Western domination in these areas because of the continued um, left-wing push, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that we see this happening in Brazil, in Colombia, mm-hmm. in Haiti, um, in Cuba, and throughout Latin America and the Caribbean more broadly. And so, um, the most obviously the most recent uh, upsurge in this was the quote unquote SOS Cuba, right? Which is like an astroturfed U.S. backed, ostensible pro democracy struggle, and we have to always be weary of this discourse of pro democracy, right? Because we heard, we hear it with the the Hong Kong protests, um, and it's always a means of rationalizing or legitimating U.S. intervention or Western intervention, and of undermining socialist or or counter like um, governments that are counter hegemonic to the West. And so I think that all of these things are happening right now. And the other important thing is that. Historically, Southcom, the Southern Command, is the the most underfunded command of all of the of all of the U.S. commands. And so, with all of this uptick in you know conflict in Haiti, in Colombia, and Cuba, et cetera, it legitimizes more funding for Southcom, which means more militarism, more intervention, more surveillance, et cetera. And so, I think that um, all of these things are happening right now. But even though Southcom has been the the least funded. The U.S. has stayed with his with his eyes on Latin America because, I mean, mm-hmm. 
even what we're talking about, this kind of trend, right, is often referred to as the pink tide. And, it, you know, Cuba is understood as kind of like a grandfather at this moment. But then when, when Chavez comes to power in 98, and then, you know, later on, and they're not all, you know, we're talking about like kind of center left, right? So then you have Lula in Brazil, and you have the Ortegas mm-hmm. in, in Nicaragua. And um, I think there was even a, a brief moment in Argentina um, over the last mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years. And it does seem like, you know, one of the things that I always think about is that this this tide it keeps ebbing and flowing ebbing and flowing because there are moments when like you look at all of south america um central america and the caribbean and there's this big shift left mm-hmm. and then there's a this moment of re-intervention from the u.s mm-hmm. and you know to to really see the contradiction and the hypocrisy of it all we can just look to the recent protests in florida Um, Because, you know, the anti-riot laws that DeSantis just passed, well, passed in response to George Floyd. Yeah, in Mm -hmm. response to George Floyd process. He basically said the stuff that the Miami Cubans are doing is nothing like that. Doesn't apply to them, And so... Those are the good niggas. Exactly. Well, you know, you you have the right to be out in the streets and and protest and demonstrate as long as you're doing it, you know, in favor of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned uh, Colombia, and Colombia keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. And Colombia has the most U.S. bases inside of that particular uh, area in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the uh, what role is Colombia playing right now <laughs> in regards to uh, the Caribbean and Latin America? Mm-hmm. Well, Colombia—they say that Colombia is the Israel it of is. South America. It's period. It is. It is the mm-hmm. strongest ally of Southcom. And the other interesting thing, too, the connection to Haiti is that ostensibly these mercenaries that um, Mm -hmm. were behind the assassination of Jovenel Moise were um, Colombian, right? Former Colombian military. And as we know, the U.S. military trains the Colombian military, does many Southcom exercises, many many military exercises in Colombia. And so even if it is that these were Colombian mercenaries, they got the Made in USA stamp, period, right? And they're the ones that said... uh you know, U.S. should intervene. They were the first ones to jump up when the whole assassination took place. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing about Colombia is that because historically, so in terms of thinking about Southcom being underfunded, there was a man called General Kelly who was testifying before Congress in like 2013, and he's talking about um, he's basically having to defend why Southcom keeps its resources and needs more resources. And one thing that they're trying to do is connect the war on terror with the war on drugs. And so this is where, if you notice, the narco-terror discourse mm-hmm. coalesces around Central America and South America. Mm-hmm. And so basically what they're, they're making this argument that um, drug traffickers are not are both funding and creating the conditions for terrorists to come through Central America, South America, through Central America, Mexico. And so there's a way that the immigration discourse, the war on terror, and the war on drugs discourse is tied. And Colombia is very central to this because they, you know, they're historically the sort of archetype, the center of like the drug war. Mm-hmm. And so this is ongoing, and it's very, very important to think about um, these connections because most of the money from the billion of the military and the defense, right, the defense industry, the military industrial complex is going toward like the Indo-Pacific and the Mideast. And so they have to continue to make this link with terrorism and this link between those threats that are being funded in order to gain more resources. And as we know, get with the situation in Haiti, for example, they're basically just trying to get a captive labor class to get to get captive markets and to allow for these corporations to have basically their fiefdoms in Haiti 
in, in Cuba if they have their way mm -hmm. um, with the cheap labor source. And so this is the way that the military industrial complex comes together with, you know, private capital and South, with Southcom being the sort of um, the boots on the ground. So we're going to take our first break. Okay. Um, and come back and continue and pick up on this discussion about U.S. hegemony in Latin America, the battle between left and right. And we're going to shift focus, too, and get to what's happening on the continent when we come back on Renegade Culture. Yeah, folks, General Cup. So having Renegade Culture, we're back again. You know what I'm saying? With our BPM family. Okay. Dr. Brown and Dr. CBS. Okay, the doctor's in the building. See, I extended the S on it. I did the CBS. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Wasn't that cool? You like that, right? No? Okay, my bad. Let's you keep it going. Quirky sense of humor. I do, I do. I Definitely do. quirky. Quirky come out. It's all good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, quirky. Quirky? I don't know if I like that, but let's get back to it. You know what I'm uh, saying? That's kind of sensitive, to it. but it's all good. Anyway, we live and direct. Um, We've been talking about a few different things, Southcom, talking about what's going on in, uh, in Latin America, in, in, in the Caribbean, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, General Kelly. Mm -hmm. General Kelly, monkey ass, he was uh, responsible for a whole lot of shit around the world. Mm -hmm. He went from Southcom to Africom, you know what I'm saying? He's a true criminal, mm -hmm. you know? Um, we want to uh, dip a little bit because of the fact that we know that um, the world's been talking about this debacle in Haiti and the whole thing with Cuba and the connection because of the fact that I don't think that uh, we should take for granted that it's just a, a separate thing going on. I don't think that it's, uh, I think it's a, a perfect military design. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Definitely. Uh, I mean, Haiti and the Dominican Republic are strategically located. I mean, geographically for access, right? You know, the U.S. could never quite get its hands on Cuba the way that it wanted to. And ideally, something that's 90 miles off the coast, you know, would be an ally for the U.S., but they haven't, they haven't been able to work that out. And so, I mean, just from, like you said, basic sort of, uh, what do you call it? strategy tactics, like it's a place where they want to be. But I mean, also, I think, you know, with Haiti, you can never talk about the Haitian predicament and not think about the fact that they've continued for what, 200 years plus now mm -hmm. to be targeted and demonized for daring to say, fuck y'all. Like, you know, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. Um, one of the things that always really struck me um, about the Dominican Republic, and I guess why it's such an easy place to be a US ally, um, post sort of the Trujillo years is is to think about the fact that when um, Toussaint came to power, the only really one of the few things that he demanded was to end slavery on the entire island. But a lot of Dominicans, not all, but a lot of Dominicans celebrate their independence from Haiti rather than from the you know from spain and so that's that is actually something that years ago got me started thinking about the sort of racial geopolitical implications of all these places and sort of what's happening there so i mean i think you know from a very basic standpoint haiti's a strategic location but there's but in the same way that the u.s continues to like put its foot on cuba's neck and venezuela's neck haiti's Haiti's had the U.S. and the world's foot on its neck for 200 years, and it's and we can never take for granted that this is always about continuing to make this case. Like, if you try, this is the shit that will happen to you. Um, and I think that you know we just can't be we can't be deterred by that, right? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, Cuba has always presented a fundamental threat because it represented socialism in the Western Hemisphere. So, for example, um, the Cuban Revolution had particular consequences for Guyana. So the so the Guyanese government was suspended twice, once under former colonial administration and once right directly before because of the, the nomination of Chetty Jagan and the PPP. This is before the PPP uh, was split racially. So initially when the PPP was founded, the People's Progressive Party was an interracial uh, party. Both Burnham and Chetty Jagan were, were founders. It was interracial. Because of U.S. and British machinations, it split into the PPP and the PNC along racial lines. But when Chetty Jagan was, uh, was nominated, I want to say in 1963, the government was suspended a second time um, because they, didn't, they literally said they didn't want another Cuba, right? Um, not only that, so the, the United States had a particular development model that it wanted to export throughout the Caribbean um, during the independence uh, era called industrialization by invitation. This is something that um, there's an economist called W. Arthur Lewis, and this is what he thought the model was for Caribbean islands that had a large labor supply, shmoshmo, blah, 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 that basically these islands would invite corporations in to come and um, develop in exchange for things like tax breaks, the, the whole shebang, right? And of course, Cuba provided an alternative model to this. And so much like Haiti providing an uh, alternative to African enslavement, um, Cuba provided an alternative model to capitalist development. And so I think that both of these nations have been suffering under um, retaliation from the United States and the West more broadly because of, um, number one, challenging the, the slaveocracy on the one hand and then challenging capitalist hegemony on the other. And so we see this playing out in manifold ways, not least with what's happening in Venezuela the continued efforts to destabilize Cuba and to paint socialism as an abject failure when indeed and in fact the failure is the blockade and sanctions. And um, yeah, so this is, this is just essentially what's happening throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. You guys brought something up before we went to break around uh, the use of the drug war. And so it, it, you know, back in the, the 60s, 70s, it, it seemed to be more overtly the United States suggesting or saying, obviously, that it's battling leftist government, 60s, 70s, 80s, all, you know, up to uh, what happened in Nicaragua and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, but then it became almost like the, the war on terrorism became the excuse for toppling governments um, or interfering in, in governments uh, in the Middle East and so forth. Here, it seems like the war on drugs has been used as sort of that entry point mm -hmm. for more U.S. military intervention, mm -hmm. DEA, CIA, FBI. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you th well, how that works in terms of Latin America and so forth. I mean, one of the most egregious examples was during 2020 when the U.S. government decided to put Nicolas Maduro and Diosdado Cabello on the uh, most wanted. I think there was a, um, what was it? It was $15 million for Maduro and $10 million for Cabello. And they basically, for narco trafficking. That's it, right? Like, so, I mean, I think the, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's, it strikes me sometimes how like weak the connections are and how to even make that claim right. And all of this is a part of, I mean, obviously we know this is, there's a long game that they're trying to play, but in that moment, it was about still trying to legitimize Guaido, right? Who, when he declared himself president in January of 2019, I think statistically something like 
I don't know, like a single digit percentage of the com- country knew who he was. And the reason why I didn't know who he was because the man spent the last 15, 10, 15 years in the U.S. Like, you know, training, working with people who work with the School for the Americas. You know, I mean, so it's, it's no surprise that when he tries to come back and, you know, impose himself, that people don't know who he is. But then what's even interesting is that I don't, Venezuela is, is, is particularly since Chavez died, is not anywhere near, I think, as organized and as sort of deeply entrenched in their own understanding of socialism mm-hmm. as maybe Cuba is. Um, but one of the things that's really been interesting is the fragmentation of the right in, in the Venezuelan case. And I think that, like, it's, I think in, a few years ago, the right in Venezuela, the, the right in general in Latin America is further to the left than the right is in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Not, not left, but mm-hmm. just, you know, slightly left of that. And I think in the last couple of years, we've really seen the right push further right in the Latin American case, and we see it with all of these different um, Leopoldo Lopez, mm-hmm. and even the ways that, and what's his name? Um, no, I was thinking about some of the other folks that have tried to run for president in Venezuela, but even how they, like, try to disassociate themselves from one another, despite the fact that there are pictures and texts and all kinds of evidence of their relationships to each other in the public sphere, right? Not like this private backdoor kind of stuff. Um, And so obviously, you know, in terms of your question, thinking about how the U.S. is utilizing the drug war, I think it's even more interesting because, you know, the face of the drug war in the U.S. is very sort of, you know, it's brown, it's black, yeah. right? But I think the face of the drug war in Latin America, it's, it's not just racialized, but it is, as Sharice was just saying, it's, it's about trying to target socialism. And I think anybody who has followed Venezuela understands the, the flawed nature of the way they've tried to implement socialism. Um, and I think that none of these, you know, none of these governments are without um, critique. Yeah. But I also think that, for one, for us as U.S. citizens, it is their right to decide for themselves in their own countries what it is that they do. But I also think that we have to be able to continue to look at and observe these experiments with socialism because we don't know. We don't know what it has, what it can really look like, particularly in the post-colonial world where so many of these countries were forced into sort of monocrop societies. I mean, that's one of Venezuela's biggest problems. Mm-hmm. I think like 89% of its GDP is based on oil. And so a country that has literally the Amazonian forest in it doesn't produce its own food. Right. And that's that's a big deal. And and the reason why it doesn't that's a part of the afterlives of slavery and colonization. And so even in thinking about kind of diversity, (laughs) I didn't mean it that way, but it is a part of that. Right. Um, And trying to think about what it means in the post-colonial world to actually be able to sustain ourselves and to see what that looks like. It has to be a joint venture across countries like no single country can make that happen. I think that's something else we need to add into this conversation is Guyana, especially when we're talking about oil, because as we know, at the beginning of this year, there was the whole, was that this year? Was that 2020? The the whole election crisis. I think that was this year. The years all run together uh, in COVID times, but um, you know, the, the whole election conflict and prior to that, right, it was 6 billion gallons of oil, something like this were discovered in Guyana and Guyana becomes a strategic location to launch a border war with Venezuela to continue to, you know, to undermine uh, Venezuelan sovereignty as well as to breathe new life into the oil industry, uh, not least ExxonMobil. And we know that this deal that um, Guyana signed 
with uh, Exxon was the worst deal literally in the history of the world in terms of the environment, in terms of labor, in terms of extraction, in terms of tax breaks, everything was the worst possible deal. And this um, undergirded the struggle, the, the you know, the fact that the, the extant government did not want to give up power because in the final analysis, they need their kickbacks. It's more complicated than this, but I think Guyana is really important. We don't know very much about this country, but it's always been um, a place that has been of strategic importance. Again, going back at least to the 1950s when the British and the Americans undermined the PPP the first time, not least because they're afraid of um, another socialist government, but also because of the natural resources that are there and because of its strategic location. And so um, all of that to say the U.S., battle against socialism in Cuba and in Venezuela has ramifications for the entire, for all of South America, for all of the Caribbean, for uh, Central America, and also for us, so. Yeah. And it's a big battle, because it's funny, when I first started going to Venezuela, all the maps and all the maps in Venezuela of Guyana, they always mark the territory as territory and reclamation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, they it's like they're all serious, like none of them, none of them live Guyana, so I, that's not a big intervention, but it just, that was giving me context for when I was first getting like, oh, why is this always listed like this in that particular context? Hey, man. Welcome to America, the place where imperialism and capitalism is, is, uh, is the product of the day. Um, you know, it's ill that you're talking about, uh, we're talking about Latin America and we're talking about the Caribbean, and it's the same playbook internationally. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The same thing, fucking up the environment everywhere, fucked, snatching up the resources, enslaving people, murdering folks, police killing people, so on and so forth. When we get come back, I want to talk about what's going on over on the continent right now. We know it's the same police terrorism. We know it's the same, quote unquote, food shortages. We know there's a couple fat motherfuckers at the top <laughs> eating the people literally, you know what I'm saying? So we want to dig into all that in a few minutes and we want to talk about how destructive these motherfuckers are. We come back, running Renegade Culture. culture. Back in Renegade Culture, okay. during the break, we was talking about Kamal Chambray's shirt. You know what I'm saying? You said, it, you said it low. You couldn't even get the word out. You can't get it. It's, my, it's a jean shirt. It's a jean shirt. I don't know. It would Stop. be as heavy as your jeans. Yeah. That's this, why this, it's Chambray. It's just made to look like that. Definitely Chambray, brother. I don't know what the fuck no Chambray and champagne. Touch my shirt. Call this nigga Sham from now on. He's a Sham. I like my Sham. <laughs> Old Sham ass. Sham ass. <laughs> anyway, speaking of Sham, let's talk about Joe, Sham South government Africa. over in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They go, you like how I did that. That was a good segue. You were there. Yeah. 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 I was smooth. I know. I'm blind you. What the fuck? Anyway. Yeah, so yeah. see, it's okay. I understand that. Haters everywhere we go. Anyway, I thought I was thought we was on the remix for a second there. But anyway, um, yeah, let's talk about South Africa. Uh, you know, a lot of folks talking about uh, Zuma is as, as if he's the the only issue that's going on in South Africa, and like his 15 months is the reason folks are out there tearing shit up. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about South Africa. What's the deal out there, good people? I mean, I think. <laughs> This is another question in media, right? Like, even as, because I've been talking to friends, um, some of some of the viewers know that I spent all of 2020 in South Africa, for which my friend here has been very upset with me. Mm. Um, but should be all right. Um, but I've been talking to a lot of friends about what's happening. And, a, you know, it's really misrepresented as, 
chaos or unrest because of Zuma. I mean, there are similar, in, in fact, there are similar issues with the way the, the current population understands Ramaphosa. In particular, um, some of the deals he made during COVID and even the way he turned his back on the mine workers, right? And in the ways that he was complicit if not responsible for the deaths of um, mine workers in, at Americana, right? Um, so a part of you know what's happening in South Africa, also because South Africa is just so 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 unequal. Mm. Though I mean the way that people you feel it and see it on an everyday basis is so obvious. Um, in particular, in a country that is ninety, like almost ninety percent black, right? Where people who are indigenous to that place just get, you know, for the most part, the worst of the worst. And then the, even the black people who don't necessarily live in those kind of poor predicaments just overwhelmingly um, have a particular kind of conservative, reactionary, or even sort of performance of a particular kind of whiteness, particular kind of bourgeois um, sensibility, a way of being. Um, so a lot of the unrest is just really about the ongoing understanding of how unequal the society is on, on top of how wealthy it is, right? And even when I was there in 2020, um, ah, shit, I forget what the hashtag was, but there was another set of what they call xenophobic attacks, um, which are usually only targeted at other continental Africans, yeah, almost yeah. never at, you know, white folks, never. Mm. And, all, and not even really with black folks from maybe the US or the Caribbean, it's really, and really even more so like Southern Africa and Nigeria. Those are the, the two places. Um, but I think there's like something like a 60% youth unemployment rate. It's somewhere around that number. Um, and so there were a lot of battles over um, younger people wanting to have certain clauses that required the government to employ you know, South African citizens as opposed to Zimbabweans or Mozambicans or whatever. Um, and so a lot of what's happening at this particular moment, I think every time we see globally, when we see like riots or rebellions, that's always the last straw right like it's always the product of a number of things that have been building up and that's just a particular opportunity to demonstrate or display that in that moment and I think that as people who are trying to look at the world and at history properly like we have to always yeah. take that into account this is never about the singular incident this is not about you know Zuma's refusal to provide his you know receipts or lack thereof or whatever he spent his money on but it's just about yet another transgression like yet another way that that this class of people is able to take advantage of poor people in South Africa. And in some way this is the build up from sort of post-apartheid South Absol Africa and absolutely. the failures of the ANC absolutely to do anything constructively around changing who owns the wealth obviously absolutely. when Mandela was out the certain accords were signed around keeping the wealth in the hands of the whites and black folks would have, Africans themselves would have political control for whatever that meant. Absolutely. And so this seems to be that buildup where the, it seems like the ANC itself is now coming apart mm -hmm. and is no longer obviously representing the side of the resistance mm -hmm. because it is now 
you know, obviously for the last 30 some odd years, mm -hmm. been the government, mm -hmm. right? And has not done anything Absolutely. except for performative work to, mm -hmm. to change the conditions of the people on the ground. Mm -hmm. State of desperation. Yeah, and in some ways, some people might, some people, you know, I think it's, it's similar to the way we even think about the sort of post-Jim you know, post Crow moment in the US. There were some things that worked in different ways during apartheid, and that there are some things that feel even more egregious mm -hmm. post-apartheid, right? Particularly the way that like certain subsections of the black population ascend into particular kinds of bourgeois positions and then and then become arms or agents of that same kind of exploitation. And I think, you know, the EFF is not without its own issues and contradictions, but there's a reason why the EFF is gaining traction in this moment. One, because of the overwhelming size of the young population in the country. Tell me what the EFF is. Uh, the Economic Freedom Fighters, okay. which is a newish... Um, political party uh, in South Africa. Um, so Julius. Uh Malema. Malema. Uh-huh. Yeah, the median age. Well, just that the median age in South Africa is 21, mm -hmm. right? And so the median age, so Swaziland, which we'll talk about, or East Swazi, which we'll talk about in a second, is the median age is 17. And so Africa, the continent as a whole, is a young continent. And so when we see these uprisings, it's really... Um, contemporary right there's all of course there's the the legacies of colonialism the neo-colonial independence era apartheid etc but these are really kind of new contradictions that are arising that these young people are um, rising up against right the the continuation of of the comprador class continuing the subjection of the overwhelming majority of the people and you know the ways that for example like the the ways that the western media focuses the ways that not the ways in which that, you know, the, the Western media focuses, for example, on Zimbabwe. So there's been sanctions against Zimbabwe since 2003 because they took the land back from the white folks, mm -hmm. leave putting no attention on the last um, absolute monarchy um, that exists in Iswahiti. What is it? Iswazi? I don't uh, know. So I feel ambivalent about that because the name, because the, the absolute monarch declared that the name and yeah. it's not, so it's no better than Swaziland, which is the colonial name. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, but um, at the same time, so we, when we talk about um, Zuma and his corruption and his ostentatious wealth, it's the exact same thing for this absolute monarchy and his family. Like there's 60% unemployment in I'm just saying Swaziland, period. Sue me. Um, you know, right? It's the same type of economic conditions. Not only that, the, over, the overwhelming industry is, is manufacturing. And so prior to this, this current protest, there was like a general strike for better wages, uh, better working conditions um, on top of, and, and the problem is that the media, the Western media, and even places like Al Jazeera keep calling this a quote unquote pro-democracy. As I said earlier, we need to be very weary of this fucking pro-democracy discourse because democracy and the, um, and the American nomenclature or the American conceptualization means Western intervention. Mm -hmm. It means Western domination. It's, it's a very particular type of, exactly, imperial electoralism, right? They don't care about any, ch any changes in the material conditions, only these sham elections. Um, and whenever they get tired of propping up whatever dictator or whatever absolute rule that had previously served them, then they start to parrot this pro-democracy line. And so I think that there's, there is relationships between what's happening in um, South Africa, what's happening in 
It's Swatini. There you go. And also the discourse even around what's happening in Ethiopia. Democracy, human rights, um, humanitarian aid, etc. There's all of these discourses that are used to um, reify imperialism, to continue Western... Right. That's you see, exactly, because it's not just, it's the U.S., but it's also the United Nations, right? We think the United Nations is this objectively good force. No, right? In, um, in um, the Caribbean, it's the OAS. It's the core group in Haiti. And so it's all of these entities that are essentially meant to um, underscore Western power and Western domination, extraction, domination, and continued um, political subjection, right? And so, and especially in the context of increased, like, Chinese... Um, relations, right? China's relations in South America, in Africa, in the Caribbean. And so the U.S. is doubling down on its militarism. The West is doubling down on its militarism to combat, like, Chinese influence. And so, um, as they say, like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But we see all of these different connections that are happening um, throughout the globe, and especially the way that racialized people, colonized people, are are subjected to these forms of domination. You spoke about... uh you, you mentioned, uh, we talked about Iswatini and also uh, Cuba, right? Mm -hmm. And around the same time the embargo was imposed on Cuba, uh, uh, Swaziland or Iswatini broke away from British rule, I think about 63 years ago. And now it's the, the, the last uh, monarchy in Africa or in, on the continent. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about this king, what the fuck is his name? M. Swahili, M. I, can't even, I'm fucking his name up now. But anyway, this rat bastard, he's living lavishly, like most of these dictators do, and uh, at least a million people over there starving. Mm -hmm. um, it's the crazy thing about it, it actually borders South Africa when you talk about the whole unrest in Mozambique. So um, I wanted to kind of um, touch on those politics over there because of the fact that I know that they've had some problems with uh, police terrorism over there. I know there was a, a law student uh, murdered by the police back in March. Uh, I believe his name was um, uh, Debone uh, Gobene, something like that. Uh, I'm fucking up right now. But um, he was a young law student. I think it was, a, uh, it was a, in his final year of law. They murdered him. And there's been a lot of, uh, the government has been going hard on a lot of the folks who've been protesting mm -hmm. the same issues that they're protesting in Cuba, the same issues they're protesting in Haiti, same issues they're protesting in South Africa, mm -hmm. food shortages, gas, so on and so forth. I want to speak on that a little bit. Like, how, how's that? Uh... So you can speak to um, Iswatini, but I was, the question that you asked made me think about two particular things that happened last year during COVID. So I don't know how many people know this, but South Africa was one of the few countries in the world that made alcohol and cigarettes illegal during um, COVID. The logic was that the, the rate of alcoholism is so high um, that the number of uh, cases in the hospital, whether it be like drunk driving or um, even spousal abuse related to alcohol, if they made alcohol illegal, it would free up spaces in the hospital for COVID stuff, right? But we also know that anytime you make shit illegal, a black market just pops yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that how you got all that wine? Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there were two people, One's, one man's name was Collins Kosa, and I believe he was in Cape Town, but there was another one in Soweto, in, in Johannesburg. Um, these two men in particular were murdered by the police 
uh, beaten to death because of having alcohol, which at any other time is completely legal, but because of these, you know, emergency laws and, and whatever under COVID, you know, they lost their lives for a beer, for just standing outside of their homes, right? And so to even think about the the notion of the police state and the way and the and the similarity of tactics, right? Like right. I think one of them one of the way and that's so even in terms of what we were talking about before about this being a sort of build up, one of the things that that you could see across South Africa, even during this alcohol ban, you could go to like super uber wealthy parts of South Africa and people, you walk into a restaurant and they give you the wine menu, Mm -hmm. even though it's illegal. Meanwhile, in in the townships, they have been told that they can't even congregate on their lawns, mm-hmm. and to be outside and have a beer is is punishable by death mm-hmm. at this particular point in time, right? And so again, like the way that people are responding in this moment is about so many different things, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even in, you know, even in thinking about the youth age and thinking about the lack of employment, and not to to bring it back to the U.S. again, but that's essentially what happens in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. There was such so many young people who were not employed who had nothing else, who had nothing to do and so they were able to sustain that level of protest for as long as they were and so there are these you know similarities that we see in conditions and circumstances where people I think are overwhelmingly pushing for something different something yeah. better and that you know we just keep getting knocked back on our asses with every time <laughs> I mean, I think the only thing I want to point out quickly is that um, it's not only just the police, it's also the military. So what was happening in East Watini? Mm-hmm. Bang, bang. Uh, what was happening there is that the police were being overwhelmed by the protests. And so they were calling in the military. We saw this happening in Colombia. It's still happening. And, you know, the declaration of martial law, we see this happening in Haiti. Right. And so the way that the the military is often trained by the United States or the West AFRICOM in the or case Israel. of Africa or, or Israel, the IDF, is turning inward, right? And so this is another function of imperialism is that the way that the military and the police go hand in glove. And so we even saw this in 2020 with the calling in of the National Guard. This is the military that's being mobilized domestically. And so we're seeing an uptick in this as these states are crushing protests, right? And again, as Layla was saying, these are last resorts. This is not, you know, people, this is out of desperation and the the extraordinary violence is being weaponized against people by both the police and the military and so um these conditions are being exported globally right because the u.s is currently you know hegemonic not necessarily economically well you know the 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 it's reaching u.s imperialism is reaching its asymptote but what is happening is that is it's exporting it you know death carcerality and and military violence as like a commodity and we're seeing this happen in all of these places that we spoke about this evening amen now i was going to say quickly you know and even though we didn't say specifically class obviously these are uh, particularly in africa are sort of class conscious um um, uh, wars that are being fought between the underclass and those who have um, but yeah, I just wanted to add that little part. I mean, you guys are great. You guys should like have your own show or something. We should think about that on Black Power Possibly. Media. Possibly, you know what I'm saying? Think about Fill out an application. Call it LDI. Or something. Yeah, I like that. Last dope intellectual. Might something dope. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We came up with a good idea. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Thank you. Right. I see that. Anyway, anyway, shout out to all the fighters out there. You know what I'm saying? Over in the Congo, in Palestine. You know what I'm saying? In in uh, Peru, in in uh, Chile. And, and I mean, it's just all over the world is so much fucking resistance. You know, it'd be a wonderful thing if all of a sudden 
everybody, all the fighters of the world woke up and said, you know what? This is fucking capitalism and imperialism. We got to crush these motherfuckers and turn on them. I had a dream about that shit one time. <laughs> dream the fucking animals in the zoo, they came the fuck out. The fucking sharks and shit in the, in the, in the, the motherfucking in the big ass the sharks aquariums came out and though. shit. Hey, R.I.P. to the salmon Detroit. boiling to death in, in Oregon and in the, the Northeast. How high yeah, were you man. when you had this? Yeah, and also, you know, the folks, you know, fighting out there in the Amazon, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? These fucking industries fucking up the environment. Yeah. But we're going to get to that in another time. Don't We'd like say. to thank you all for coming up on this motherfucker, Renegade Culture. Don't thank say. you. You know what I'm saying? Welcome. Every now and then we ask some intelligent motherfuckers like myself, <laughs> and uh, <coughs> and then Kamal comes through. Grab my nice shirt. Yes, he comes with the chambray. Chambray. Yes. Anyway, Renegade Culture, thank y'all for joining us. We see y'all next week. No doubt. Bam. Stay chambrayed up. <laughs>